entirety of it this week. And we got through about verse number four uh, last week, if I remember correctly. Um, just coming up on that uh, second section, uh, there's basically uh, five um, divisions of this psalm. Verses one to three is kind of just a, uh, a preface where David is kind of laying out some things um, and kind of laying a foundation for what he's going to be um, writing this psalm about. Um, the psalm is a psalm that he wrote as uh, a song of gratefulness, gratitude, praise to God for his deliverance from his enemies, his foes, especially Saul, during the time that he was seeking for his uh, life. And uh, David had been delivered from that. We find a parallel passage in Second Samuel chapter 22 uh, where David uh, uses a lot of this language and familiarity uh, with that particular uh, portion of Scripture. <coughs> Excuse me. At the time of the writing, David is already king of Judah, <coughs> and uh, yet he refers to himself as a servant. He can think of nothing higher uh, that would uh, be uh, of any greater uh, testimony than to be called the servant of the Lord. And by the way, uh, I remember years ago listening to my dad preach, and I don't know how many times over the years I heard him say uh, this phrase or this, this statement. He said, you know, God doesn't need more pastors. He doesn't need more missionaries. Uh, he doesn't need more Sunday school teachers or bus captains. What God needs are some more servants. And I thought, well, what a great statement. Uh, because if we come to God and say, Lord, uh, I want to just be your servant, then God can place us where he wants us. Um, I fear sometimes we get in our minds that this, I want to serve the Lord, and Lord, here's how I want to serve you. Here's where I want to serve you. Um, I believe it was uh, Hudson Taylor that made the statement that uh, it, is, it is not up to him uh, to decide, meaning himself, Hudson Taylor saying, it's not up to me where I serve or how. He said it's rather for him to decide. And he said he was longing that God would make it evident to him to know where he was to serve and how he was to serve. And I think there's a great truth in that, uh, that we as God's people, when it comes to the Lord, we don't put stipulations on our service. That we say, Lord, you can have me and use me any way you see fit. Make it very abundantly clear. And uh, so David comes and he mentions himself as a servant. <clears throat> we spent some time last week in those first, four, uh, first three verses. Um, and uh, at the very end of it, uh, we find that in chapter or in verse number 4, down through about verse number 19, and I think that was the division we had. Let me make sure I gave you the same divisions. 4 to verse 19, we have God's... Um, deliverance, where David is uh, praising him for his deliverance. In verses 20 to 28, we find that uh, God is uh, that David is mentioning that God is uh, rewarding him uh, for his righteousness, for living rightly. And then verse 29 to 45, uh, we find that he once again has an expression of joy and gratitude. Uh, and but in this section, um, not only for what God has done in the past but looking forward with anticipation to what God will do in his future uh, to deliver him again in the future for things that he's in need for. And then verses 46 to 50, uh, we see that there are some prophetic uh, verses being used here that point us to the Lord Jesus as the Messiah coming soon and is found there towards the end of this particular psalm. In verse number 4, we're going to see an increase of 
what we would consider to be poetic language. And so we're going to look at some of these, and, and, and I want you to keep in mind that um, poetic language is there to express sometimes the magnitude, uh, sometimes to um, express the exceeding greatness of something. Um, we would use a word sometimes um, in, in our, uh, in our uh, vocabulary, we would use the word uh, hyperbole to mean that we are overstating something. And I would say this about verses 4 to verse number 19, that while David is using poetic language, do not mistake it for hyperbole because it is not overstating it. It is a picture uh, that, God, that David is using to express uh, as best as is humanly possible the magnitude and the greatness of what God did in his deliverance to David. And if anything, we would say it has been understated. And so kind of keep that in mind as we go through here. We're going to begin in verse number 4 this morning. <clears throat> David says, The sorrows of death compassed me, and the floods of ungodly men uh, made me afraid. And so, uh, once again, we find a couple of things that are mentioned here uh, that he is feels like he is completely surrounded, uh, that there's no way of escape, that he's, he's bound in, if you will, uh, and that these, these foes, these enemies, are, are coming to execute him. Uh, and this idea of death uh, uh, compassing him around. And then he says, he speaks of these floods of ungodly men and how uh, he's literally overwhelmed by it. And there are times in our lives, and I think all of us can relate to this, that we look back and we say uh, on some issues that we've gone through, and we've, say, we've said maybe uh, going through it, this is more than I can bear. This is too much. I just can't go further. This is, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this. And this is the kind of sense that David's speaking of here. The fact that he was, uh, he was overwhelmed, these floods of ungodly men just continue to come and come and come. The onslaught, if you will, uh, of the ungodly men. Um, and uh, one commentator likened it to the disciples when they were on the Sea of Galilee and the storm came up and the Bible says, that the waves were overtaking the ship and just one after the other were crashing on top of the boat. And uh, they feared for their life because of it. They thought there was no way of escape. And he used that illustration to kind of picture that this is the sense that David's giving here when he talks about there being these floods of ungodly men, that they just come in waves and continuously compass them around. Uh, and then he talks about in verse number 5, the sorrows of hell compassed me about. And uh, again, surrounding uh, him like, uh, a deer that's maybe being hunted, uh, that he's being tracked down, that, uh, that Satan is after him as a roaring lion. He's uh, pacing, he's uh, tracking him, he's stalking him. Um, the idea that even hell itself is compassing him around. And then he talks about the snares of death prevented him. And uh, the idea of traps being laid everywhere. Uh, and how he had to be so careful and cautious. And so as he, he's, he uses these two verses to kind of uh, try to give us an understanding of the way his heart felt. Now, keep in mind, he's writing this on the outside of, of this engagement with the enemy. He's, he's already been delivered. So he's, rec he's recollecting, he's thinking back to uh, how he felt during this time. And, and really, the case could be made, as you read these verses 4 and 5, that David had a sense of hopelessness. I mean, there was nowhere for him to turn. Where could he turn? And the only thing he could do is pray and cry out to God. There was no deliverance for him. Everywhere he looked, 
there was nothing but the enemy coming after him. There was nothing more than uh, additional traps and snares, and uh, death itself was chasing after him. Um, and, and you could say that uh, he, was, he was at a point of despair, despondency during this time. And it's easy sometimes when we're in the heat of the battle to feel that way. And our faith oftentimes will, it'll become very apparent to us how strong it is or how weak it is. And persecution always seems to expose the strength of our faith, doesn't it? Uh, Trials always seem to expose the strength of our faith. And what we oftentimes think of as strong faith when tried and put under the pressure cooker of uh, trials and circumstances of life oftentimes we realize our faith is not quite as strong as we thought it was. And so David is, is kind of trying to paint a picture here of what God is delivering him from. And it kind of helps us to understand now as we get to verse number 6, and he begins to talk about some of the things that, uh, that uh, God did in the way of deliverance. It, tries, it kind of gives us a little better understanding that this was no small task. There was not a man that David knew of in the world that could deliver him. There was not a a group of men in the world. There was not an army in the world that could have delivered him. That when it came to the deliverance that David needed, only God himself was able and up to the task. And so as we get to verse number 6, he says this, In my distress, and he had plenty of it, didn't he? In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple And my cry came before him, even into his ears. And again, here's a wonderful picture of verse 6 of the poetic language that David uses. If we're we're not careful when we read this verse, we kind of will get this idea or mindset that God was uh, in his temple, if you will, up in heaven, uh, and that he was busy with other things, and that when David cried out, uh, that, that God had to be directing his attention to David at that time. In other words, as if he did not know what was going on with David's life. But understand this, even though that's how David felt about it, and that's how David explains it here in verse number 6, God is never at a loss for what's going on in your life. He's constantly aware of it. Uh, He is constantly seeing and intimately involved in your life every moment of every day. And you say, Pastor, how do you know that? Because the Bible says that he knows the hair, number of hairs on my head. Uh, he, he knows my name. He prays for me. And there are things in Scripture that point so closely to the fact that God is constantly watching. There, there was a song written a number of years ago that some of the teenagers in my youth group used to sing. And the, uh, the, the chorus of it, uh, go, it had the phrase, uh, He loves me like I was his only child. And uh, they go on to express how it's a, and a wonderful feeling to feel that way. And at the end of the song, he says, that they come to another phrase, and the phrase is something along the lines of this. The amazing part of it is all of his children feel that way. Every single one of us feel like we're his only child because that's how special he treats us. That's how carefully he is involved in our lives. And so as we get to verse number 6, uh, David here is expressing some things. I don't want you to get the wrong idea that, that God was off somewhere distracted and doing other things and wasn't aware of David's plight. And that David had to remind God of it to bring him to action. God knew his plight. But I want you to notice some things in verse 6 that I think are very important. He says this in in verse 6. He says, in my distress, notice this, he says, I called upon the Lord. 
there's, a, there's two things I want you to notice here. First of all, I want you to understand the word called. He called upon the Lord. And then I want you to notice what he refers to the Lord as. And he uses the indefinite article, the, the Lord. And uh, this, is, this is at the onset. And then he goes on to say, and cried. And not only to the Lord at this point, but now he says unto my God. I think there's something to be learned from this. And I think that, that you may disagree with me on it, but the way that this verse is written, it, it gives me the idea that at the onset, David is praying. He's crying out in his distress, uh, calling on the Lord uh, as the God of heaven, uh, the one that created the universes uh, and all that, all that there is. And that he called to him for help. But the more that he prayed, the more fervent his prayer become, became and the more personal his prayer became. No longer was it just praying to the Lord. Now he's praying to my God. No longer is he calling. No, now he is crying out. And I would say this. The Bible tells us in the book of James, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And oftentimes we wonder, what is it that makes it a fervent prayer? Can I tell you this, that the more, more we pray, the more burdened we are to pray. The more we pray, the more fervent our praying becomes. I remember years ago, a number of years ago, uh, and I was uh, home from my freshman year of college. <clears throat> and um, I was working three jobs in the summertime. I had about uh, maybe three or four hours of sleep a day, uh, six days a week. I didn't work Sundays, and that was the only time I didn't. Uh, but I was working three jobs, and my my personal time. I, I noticed just two or three weeks into the summer, I, I just didn't have I didn't have time. I, I didn't read my Bible. I wasn't praying like I should, and I could tell there was a huge huge difference in my life, and I didn't like it. And I remember telling the Lord, I said, Lord, I'm going to get home from my midnight shift, and I got home about three o'clock in the morning, and I said, I'm going to spend time when I get home praying. And, and, and I'm going to, I just want to spend time with you. And I remember my mom and dad had a two-story house. And I remember coming home that morning, and I, uh, about 3 o'clock in the morning, kneeling down at the, at the couch there in the downstairs living room. And I began to pray. And it had been several weeks. It had been probably maybe even as much as a month before I'd had just personal time with the Lord, just me and him, and no distraction, nothing. And, and so I prayed, and I, I began to I'll go through a list of things I needed to pray for and people that I needed to pray for. And, and I thought, boy, I've been here. I, I must be here at least a half an hour, maybe an hour. And I got up from praying, and it had been seven minutes. And, and I thought, boy, Lord, how, how pitiful is that? that and, and not that it's about the time, but it's about the fact how short of a time it was that I felt like I had just spent all this time with God. And I began to, every night as I'd come home, I'd begin to kneel down and pray. And it was amazing as the time, as the summer went on, that time didn't matter anymore. It, it got sweeter and it got sweeter. And the time that was spent was so much, and the fervency in praying was so much better. And I think all of us can relate to this. If we've had moments in our lives where we've had times where we've not been walking with the Lord the way that we had in the past, or maybe we've gotten away from some of our prayer time or Bible reading time, that when we try to get back into it initially, it's, it's like taking baby steps some, to some degree. And that the more we pray, the more fervent we begin to pray. And the more we pray, no longer are we praying to the God of heaven. Now we're praying to my God. Now we're praying to, to my Father. 
one that I, I feel very close and intimate with. And so I would say this. I think we can learn something in verse 6 here from David that as we continue to pray and, and pray fervently, I mean, he's praying in distress here. As we begin to pray fervently, God will begin to build that fervency in our lives. And he'll make our praying more personal to us. He said, I cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him even into his ears. Somebody said this. He said, for up within the bejeweled walls, or he says, up within the bejeweled walls, And through the gates of pearl, the cry of the suffering supplicant was heard. Music of angels and harmony of seraphs availed not to draw, uh, uh, to drown, or even to impair the voice of that humble call. The king heard it in his palace of light unsufferable and lent a willing ear to the cry of his own beloved child. O honored prayer to be able to thus, through Jesus' blood, to penetrate the very ears and heart of God himself. The voice and the cry are them, uh, are themselves heard directly by the Lord and not made to pass through the medium of saints or intercessors. David said, my cry came before him. The operation of prayer with God is immediate and personal. We may cry with confidence and familiar importunity while the Father himself listens. I thought, boy, what a great truth is found in verse number 6. I know the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that we can come boldly to the throne of grace and the wonderful grace of prayer, the wonderful benefit of prayer that we gain uh, reconciliation for. We're able to come to the very presence of God because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We take such little advantage of it, it seems like, in our lives. That which is the greatest thing that we can do. I, I preached on this before uh, regarding the idea of prayer and the fact that sometimes when I'm talking with someone and they say, uh, I've got this problem, and, and, and uh, I'll, I'll mention usually, or I've even heard other people do this too, and, but oftentimes I catch myself saying, uh, I'll be praying for you. And if I'm not careful, sometimes I'll make this statement, or I, I know I have in the past, I wish I could do more. The truth is the greatest thing I can do for someone is pray for them. As we're going to see here as we get into this, these next several verses, prayer moves heaven itself. As we get to verse number 7, he says, Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills moved and were shaken because he was wroth. Now, between verse number 6 and verse number 7, we don't see a delay. We don't see <coughs> there being some kind of a waiting period. But it seems to be that God instantaneously moves on David's behalf. Now, does God always move instantaneously for us when we pray? The answer to that is no. Sometimes he has us wait. In fact, in the book of Daniel, Daniel had a vision one night, a dream. And he didn't understand it, and he asked for the understanding of it. And for 21 days he fasted, and he sat in sackcloth and ashes, and finally on the 21st day, the messenger of God came to him and said, I was sent out to give you the message on the very first day of your supplication. But the prince of Persia withstood me. And he said he had to call Michael, the archangel, to come and to assist him in breaking through the prince of Persia to bring the message to Daniel. 
And so sometimes spiritual warfare hinders God's answer to our prayers. Sometimes sin in our life hinders God's answer to prayers. And uh, so not always does he bring it immediately. But one thing I have found in this particular psalm is it seems like when his children are in distress, when his children are embattled, that when they cry to him, his deliverance is very swift. And as we find here in verse 7, the Bible says that when David prayed and he cried unto God, in verse number 7 it says, The earth shook and trembled. I mean, the very foundations of the earth itself uh, are moved if it is so needed. And God is able to do such a thing. He can actually change earth. Do we understand the might and the power of our God? I I know we do, but I fear sometimes. I was watching some... Uh, in fact, we, we did a study here about a year ago on the Word of Faith movement and the New Apostolic Reformation group that's out there and uh, how they talk about the fact that we are little gods and, and they, they put the idea that God cannot, and they'll, they'll actually say this, they'll say God cannot do anything in this earth unless we give Him authority to do so. Can I tell you, that is making us deity and that's making Him below us. And man is prone to humanizing God and bringing God down to his uh, to our level. And even the most ardent Christian, the most faithful in reading Scripture, if we're not careful, we'll begin to think too little of who God is. As we understand this, God can do anything He chooses to do. And there are at least two examples of Scripture where He actually made the day stand still. During the time of the Old Testament when the children of Israel were fighting a battle and the, the, uh, the enemy, were they were conquering, they were winning, but they weren't going to get all of the enemy before the sun went down. Joshua said, sun and moon stand still. And the Bible says, guess what? The sun and moon stood still. Now you think about that for a moment. We understand science. We understand physics. This earth is spinning. It's spinning pretty rapidly. Several thousands of miles per hour, in fact. One or two things had to happen for that to, to, stop, to, to, to stop the daylight. The daylight, the earth either had to stop its rotation, in which case, could you imagine how many things would have gone flying if the earth had stopped? Or the sun had to move exponentially more because of the distance that it was to stay in, in circuit around the earth. Or you could say... Pastor, how do you know it had to be one of those two? I'm going to tell you right now, it didn't have to be either one. God could have just made it happen. Are we understanding the might and the power of our God? Things that our minds cannot comprehend, He can do. The earth shook and trembled. Notice this. It says the foundations of the hills moved and were shaken because He was wroth. There went up smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured coal, uh, devoured coals were kindled by it. Somebody said this, and there is actually science behind this, that when we have strong emotion, the temperature of our breath coming from our nostrils increases. It gets hotter. The idea of God judging with, with smoke coming from his nostrils, the, the wrath that came forth for these enemies that were coming against his children. He bowed the heavens also and came down and darkness was under his feet. didn't matter how dark it was, God was in control of it. In fact, 
I love the story of, uh, I love a lot of the stories of the Old Testament, but when I get to the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel uh, gets in trouble with the king. And because he gets in trouble with the king, he's thrown into the lion's den. And God, the Bible says, when Daniel cries out to the king, he says, My God, shut the lion's mouths. And God delivered him from the lions. But when the three Hebrew boys got thrown into the fire, he didn't deliver them from the fire. He went and joined them. The Bible says that when Nebuchadnezzar looked into the furnace, he saw four men loose and walking around, and the fourth was like unto the Son of God. There's somebody who wrote a song years ago, sometimes he calms the storm, sometimes he calms me. But God, God is able to do exceedingly beyond what we can think. And when it comes to his deliverance of his children, sometimes he delivers them from the trial. Sometimes he joins them in the trial. And here we find that in this darkness that was on David's life in verse number 9, that the darkness that was there was under his feet. Even the darkness had to succumb to God. And he rode upon a cherub, I love this, and did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness, verse number 11, his secret place. His pavilion. Round about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. You know what verse 11 says? In the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the storm, God came in and he set up camp. It doesn't say it in those words, but it says this, that his pavilion was round him, and were, around him were the dark waters and the thick cloud of the skies. He, he, he offered a place of shelter in the midst of the storm. He made darkness his secret place. You remember what the psalmist said about that? He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Why? Because in the midst of the darkness and the storm, God can come and bring a pavilion. Verse 12, the darkness flees. The Bible says, At the brightness that was before him, his thick clouds passed. You know what was the the brightness of God in David's eyes? You know what was the, the clouds passing in David's eyes? It was God's quick judgment and swift judgment upon His enemies. Look what it says in verse 12. At the brightness that was before Him, His thick clouds passed, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the highest gave His voice, hailstones and coals of fire. I do not rejoice in God's judgment on sinful man. But I am thankful that when I am compassed about with death and hell and those that are bent on my destruction and the destruction of my God, that He has to move His lips and He brings deliverance. Verse 13, the Bible says, And the highest gave His voice. The judgment came by him speaking. He gave his voice. 
By the way, what a voice it is. Look at what it said there in verse number 13. The Lord also what? Thundered in the heavens. You ever, you ever been in some severe thunderstorms here in the Midwest? We get a few of them, don't we? You ever have them bolt of lightnings that they're like right outside your front door? That the second it flashes, the, the explosiveness is it's almost deafening. They've, they've talked about the fact, scientists have talked about the fact, if they could harness the energy of even one bolt of lightning, it could power an unbelievable amount of uh, homes in the United States for a length of period of time in just one bolt of lightning. And I thought, you know, when I came to this verse, I thought, you know, when these, these storms come, especially the severe storms, the, the thunder exploding and lightning, lightning flashing constantly, and the thunder rolling almost on the heels of the, the one before it, it ought to remind us of the might and the power of our God. Because the Bible talks about this, that when He speaks, these thunderings go out. Hold your place here a moment. And we're probably going to end there for sake of time. And I want you to see this. I love, I love what the Bible says as it brings description of Him in, in Isaiah chapter number 6. One of, one of, my, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. In verse number 1, Isaiah chapter 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne. By the way, he's not the good old boy or the man upstairs. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is the God of heaven. And the truth of the matter is, if we could ever understand and see him for who he is, we would be as Isaiah here, and we would fall prostrate in front of him and not even be able to speak, I don't believe at the glory of Him, the magnificence of Him. I've been tongue-tied a few times in the presence of people that were men of power, men of prestige in our world, and not knowing what to say. Can I tell you this? They don't hold a candle to my God. There will come a day where we will bow and where we will kneel. We will give honor and glory that is due to Him. And the Bible says that He saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six. By the way, I'm glad that the God of heaven fills the temple, aren't you? You take some time to read Haggai chapter 2 today. I love reading Haggai chapter 2. They're building the second temple. Solomon's temple had been destroyed They're building the second one, and it's nothing in glory like Solomon's temple. And the old people that remembered Solomon's temple were criticizing the younger people, saying, this isn't anything like what Solomon's temple was. And God came to them and said, guys, don't you worry about it. He said, because I will fill this temple with my glory. And the glory of this temple will be greater than that of Solomon's. Not because of its ornateness, but because of His presence. Above it, in verse number 2 of Isaiah 6, stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain He covers His face. With twain He covered His feet. And with twain He did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now, I want you to notice what verse 4 says. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. 
and the house was filled with smoke. God isn't even the one that's shaking the post of the house here. Do you understand this? The ones that are crying, holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts, is shaking the post of the house. If those that herald the greatness and the holiness of our God have such power, and they bow in obeisance to Him, and they cover their faces in humility before Him, can you only imagine what God must be like? Oh, that we would learn how great and mighty of a God we serve. And David said, I called to the Lord. Then I cried to my God. And He delivered me. Why? Why are we so frail in our faith when we serve a God like that? Why is it that we have anxiety at all when we serve a God like that? You say, well, Pastor, I might not be delivered. God might not deliver me. He might not. He might choose to come through it with you. But I know the psalmist said this, in the storm, in the darkness, in the clouds, He was a pavilion. He's my fortress. He's my high tower. Why should ever a Christian be fearful? Why should ever a Christian be anxious? When we have a God that's not just the God of heaven, but He is my God. And He is your God. Well, what a great psalm. Let's stand. We'll be dismissed and we'll pick up there next week. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word. Lord David uses an awful lot of picturesque speech here and word pictures that just cause our imaginations to soar. And the truth of the matter is,